It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, one of the most important takeaways from nature is just how connected to their environment many species of fishes are. And I'm fascinated by this relationship between fishes and their habitats. It it goes beyond just inspiration. Um, We see a lot of people talking about how inspiring nature is and we should turn to nature and, you know, us among them. And manufacturers and brands are are talking about this more often than not these days. And that's pretty cool because it's putting a focus on nature, not just the work of our you know, aquarium hobby and so forth. But I think it also misses a fundamental point, just being inspired by how nature looks versus by how it functions and asking questions about why things are the way they are. Now, it's no secret that many habitats, like our favorite flooded forests, uh, are very unique. Fishes move in and out of them seasonally, not only because of the water level, of course, but because of the food sources which are available to them. The flood cycle of the rivers in the Igarapes are the dominant seasonal factor, and fish communities are found to fluctuate greatly over the year. During the inundation, fish migrate into floodplain forests to feed on insects, fruits, seeds, and uh, among other things. Now, studies of these blackwater communities showed that during these cycles, a greater diversity of fishes exist there. Kind of makes sense. Many species were found to be specialized feature, feeders, you know, like fish, detritus, and insects. They're the most important food resources supported by, you know, that support the fish community in both high and low water seasons. But the proportions of fruits, invertebrates, and fish were reduced during the low water season. Are there some takeaways here for us fish geeks? Of course, sure. <laughs> for one thing, fishes sort of follow the food, right? And the seasonal availability of some food sources actually dictates the overall behavior of the fishes. And as we've discussed previously, the fish population and diversity in these agapa regions, long thought to be somewhat impoverished, is actually very diverse and significant. And studies have revealed that many fishes are found in the submerged litter bank of these regions, forming dense local populations which are specialized and live on the allochthonous inputs, which is, as you remember from our many times, it's defined as material that's imported into an ecosystem from outside of it, found, uh, uh, you know, from on the inundated forest floors. Now, the fishes have adapted to live in an environment with varying leaf and wood density and seasonal variations in depth. And the food production capacity of these habitats for the resident aquatic fauna is immense. The seasonal flooding brings fishes into contact with a greater abundance and diversity of allochthonous food resources, especially within forested watersheds, and is thus significant to their life cycle. With regards to the type of fishes that we find in these habitats, uh, scientists have found repeatedly that the majority seem to be kerosens, followed by loricarids, cichlids, and everything else, you know, knife fishes and stuff like that. And as we know by now, the allochthonous inputs, you know, seeds, leaves, seed pods, insects, flowers, etc., that our fishes utilize in the, wired, in the wild and can no doubt benefit from in the aquarium as well, are abundant. One of the most important resources in natural aquatic systems are what are known as macrophytes, aquatic plants, which grow in and around the water, emerge, submerge, floating, etc. Not only do macrophytes contribute to the physical structure and spatial organization of the water bodies that they inhabit, 
They are primary contributors to the overall biological stability of the habitat, conditioning the physical parameters of the water. Of course, anyone who keeps planet aquariums could attest to that already, right? I mean, we all know that. Now, one of the interesting things about macrophytes is that although there are a lot of fishes which feed directly upon them, the plants themselves are perhaps the most, you know, most valuable as a microhabitat for algae, zooplankton, and other organisms upon which the fishes feed on. Small aquatic crustaceans seek out the shelter of plants for both their food resources and for the protection from predators. Yeah, the fishes. <laughs> and leaf litter, botanical materials, etc. serve as the perfect shelter for these macrophytes in which to grow and multiply. And of course, the interrelationships between the fishes and environments are not just limited to South America or even Southeast Asia. They're all over the world. Like many of you, I do a fair amount of research about the fishes and the environments that they come from. And to me, some of the most fascinating fishes and the ones which have the most intimate connection to their habitat are the annual killifishes, specifically those from Africa, such as the much-loved Nothobranchia species. Now, the typical environments which these fishes live in are small, temporary savanna pools in sandy soils with a layer of black mud on top. And that's where it gets kind of interesting. Nothos don't just live and reproduce in any old mud hole. Nope. Uh, rather, they're intimately tied to specific types of soils, muds, and sands. And there's good reason, too. According to one study I read, Nothobranchias never inhabit pools consisting only of orange-colored laterite soils. Although these pools are very common in the African savanna, especially after heavy precipitation, they're characterized by kaolin-type clay minerals and are slightly acidic, and their substrate is not suitable for Nothobranchius embryo survival during the dry period. Did you catch that? That's really interesting. Another huge takeaway, the, uh, and I quote, the critical prerequisite of Nothobranchius occurrence in a particular pool is the specific composition of the substrate. That's from Waters in 2009. Soil conditions are the primary drivers of habitat suitability for Nothobranchius, as eggs can only survive the embryonic period and develop successfully on quaternary vertisoil and calcimorph soils. In other words, the relationships between these fishes and their environment, particularly the soil, is super critical. Again, these pools accumulate in a soil type called vertisol. Vertisol is a clay soil with little organic matter, which occurs in regions having distinct wet and dry seasons. Alkaline clay minerals, called smectates, are considered to be prerequisites to create suitable conditions during embryonic development in desiccated pool substrates. I can't say that enough. It's an absolute relationship between the fish and their habitat. And here's the other cool takeaway, one which could actually have some impact on the way we keep and breed these unique fishes. The mud-rich layer in these kind of pools has low permeability, a characteristic which enables water to remain in the pools after the surrounding water table has receded. Without the presence of this impermeable layer, the pools will rapidly desiccate. Visually, the substrate is dark brown to black, often forming a thick layer of soft mud on the bottom of the pool. This, of course, makes these unique aquatic ecosystems all the more fascinating to us as tropical fish hobbyists. In the dry part of the range of the genus Nothobranchius in southwestern Mozambique, many pools are inhabited by the well-known Achilles, Nothobranchius verzeri, and Nothobranchius orthonatus, they're usually isolated from more permanent bodies of water and are filled exclusively by rainwater during periods of high precipitation. That's really fascinating. This environment doesn't even exist until it rains. Now, some of these pools, however, may occasionally be connected as they are essentially depressions in the savanna in which water drained from the larger bodies of water accumulates. However, these pools and their dry cycles directly impact the life cycle and reproductive strategies of the annual fishes which reside in them. 
the fascinating concept of embryonic diapause, which we've talked about before, it's a form of prolonged yet reversible developmental arrest, is well known to scientists and to lovers of annual killifishes. The occurrence and length of time of diapause varies from species to species, yet is considered by scientists to be an evolutionary adaptation and ecological trait in various populations of Nothobranchius tied directly into the characteristics of the ephemeral habitats, i.e. the ponds and so forth, in which these fishes reside. Diapause assures that species will survive by enabling the annual life cycle of these fishes to be completed, and it can be affected by the presence of adult fishes in the habitat. Not a good idea if there's predators around, right? Which is another fascinating adaptation. So in other words, if it's, if it's wet on a continuous level, the eggs won't hatch, not only because they need the dryness for the developmental um, processes, but it's also programmed because it also nature has learned over eons that if you have fish that can potentially eat you when you're a fry, it's not a good idea to have the eggs hatch. So since embryonic, the embryonic phase of most Nothobranchias is a relatively long period of their lives, and in some species, the longest phase of their lives, these are factors that are really important. Factors which impact embryonic development are paramount. Oh, and then the really interesting part is organic material aggregates, and, and I'm going to quote you on this. This is from a study by Reichard in 2009. Organic material aggregates on the bottom of the pool form of, in the form of dead aquatic and terrestrial vegetation, but does not cover the large part of the bottom, as is typical of water bodies in forest areas with leaf litter. Despite the presence of rapidly decaying material, the water stays alkaline due to the high buffering capacity of the alkaline clay in the sediment. So that's kind of interesting, right? That's something that we as botanical style aquarists, you know, experience quite a bit. The buffering effect of substrate, despite a huge presence of decomposing leaves and you know tannin-inducing materials, it's part of the reason why some people probably have trouble getting their pH down due to you know to the very low levels that they're seeking in the aquarium. But that's where the idea of alternative substrates comes in, right? The stuff that I've been talking about. So yeah, the substrate is of critical importance to the aquatic life forms which reside uh, in kill- particularly killifish. Uh, one study that I read indicated that soils are the primary drivers of habitat suitability for these fishes and that the eggs can only survive the embryonic period and develop in specific soil types containing this alkaline clay minerals known as smectites, which create the proper soil conditions for this, you know, in desiccated pool substrates. It's a big takeaway for us as hobbyists, right? I can go on and on and on about all sorts of relationships between fishes and their habitats, particularly with killies, because it's interesting, but there's so many and there's so many killifish habitats that are actually covered in leaf litter and other stuff which create very specific conditions for the eggs you know reproduction yeah if you look hard enough you can find examples for just about everything you're looking for by observing nature closely and we haven't even really touched upon the relationship between land and water in this piece we've talked about that many times before but it's a relationship which we're just starting to consider in aquariums a relationship which has vast implications for aquariums just confining our research to hobby literature and you know, articles and books and so forth, is to overlook this enormous amount of information that's available to us via academic research. Yeah, it's a little drier, it's a little harder to understand some of the stuff, but the takeaways are amazing. And we as hobbyists should just all deep dive now and again into the many, many, many resources available to us online. Again, the most important takeaway from today's little review is that fishes found in specific habitats are found there for a reason. They're often intimately tied to the environments, seasonal cycles and so forth, in which they're found, not only benefiting from, but sometimes contributing to the overall habitat. It's an amazing relationship that we as hobbyists should look at very closely, as potential for breakthroughs that can benefit our efforts is just out there, waiting for us to unpack. 
Interested? Well, you should be. Stay dedicated, stay curious, stay resourceful, stay observant, stay creative, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Bellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.